Hanging off the edge of a cliff in a storm, the first shocking sight of Esk Valley after the cyclone, the bitter debate over Karakia, the Israel-Hamas war. We've been there and covered them all and much more. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on our last detail of the year, I talk about our favourites with producer Alexia Russell and co-host Tom Kitchen. Where shall we begin? We could begin with that cackle, um, cackle. because one of your favourite long reads slash podcast, (laughs) Bad Jelly the Witch. Why? So we started? Yeah. Oh, okay. That's right. It's the 50th anniversary of Bad Jelly this year, and I had the good fortune to speak to a bad jellyologist, Gemma Gracewood, who's written a fantastic five-part series on... Everything about bad jelly, how New Zealand's adopted it, how it wasn't really such a big deal in England, how we put out the you know, the only reprint of the CD kind of thing. And I had practised my cackle. Mm. <laughs> <And they> were... <laughs> Gemma said I looked like a witch because I was wearing a purple cardigan. It's new to me. Uh, and it was taken out. Oh, it's an outrage. <laughs> it's an outrage. Outrage. Okay. But, but there was so was... much fun. Yeah. Some of those long reads have been... An awful lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, the Shane Carter one sticks out to me as well. This week, it's Immortal Bangers and Me by Shane Carter. Straight jacket fits and dimmer. He was a lovely surprise, actually. He was. Well, he read his own story about a collaboration with the NZSO in Wellington. And he's a beautiful reader. You know, he's got an amazing voice and he's very fluent. I mean, a fantastic writer as well. And then he missed out a bit. And Bonnie and I both said at the same time, you just missed Did you want to miss there? a line? Yeah. I knew you guys were going to pull me up. I don't like that line. Okay. So can I just leave that out? Yes. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah no one's going to look. Who's going to ring up and sue? I'll, I'll arrange for someone to. Oh, I'll right. direct them straight to you. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, everybody, we're interrupting this broadcast just to tell you. Um, yeah. There's a line missing. <laughs> not, that ju- not that we're Not that we're judging. To something more serious. It's been the year of. Anger. We have had quite a lot of vitriol, and we're not the only journalists who have had this, but I'm thinking you did a podcast about the murky world of the manosphere. It's more than just, as my son Connor told me, an echo chamber on the internet. It's a growing world sucking up more and more vulnerable young men. The reaction that you got from someone to that was so kind of over the top, really. This is the letter I got. A lot of problems today are actually caused by women who've had their minds addled by feminism. That's you, Sharon. Mm -hmm. Where do you think this has come from? Feminists are toxic, have been for years. Arrogance and stupidity beyond belief. Rude to men who hold a door open. Too stupid to realise the men have a narrower pelvis than worm and therefore knees automatically turn out and the arrogance of females to think they can take an action against men sitting with knees splayed. You might get the impression that this is very poorly constructed and you're correct. They have the arrogance to demand no more male-only clubs. Who the hell do they think they are to demand this? I have every right to a male-only or any other type of club. Who says I have to include? You wonder where male attitude are from. Who do young boys spend most time with? Females, mothers and female teachers. Fathers a short time after he gets home. So where has this toxic come from? You need to look at yourselves before casting stones elsewhere. And this is a bit I like. You might also, in the interest of comprehensive coverage of media portrayal of relationships between men and women, examine Taylor Swift's 2014 song, Blank Space. The line, boys only want love if it's torture, would seem to warrant particular attention. 
issues, you might also choose to factor in could be Taylor Swift's 248 million Instagram followers and whether her song lyrics and video might meet the definition of hate speech. Andrew Tate is clearly a lowlife, but it is the era of Donald Trump. You can ski down the slant of this piece of journalism. It's so steep. Um, <laughs> narrow hips. I just have to get my head around that. <laughs> anyway, but, uh, but talking about reaction, angry reaction, some of it you expect when you do a podcast. For example, we did a couple on the gender wars and there was quite a lot of uh, outrage at what we thought was very, were very balanced podcasts. Mm. Sometimes it's whatever you put in, you're going to get at least yeah. one angry email. Oh, there are some topics that really trigger them, don't they? ADHD, Israel Hamas, and I thought that the one that you did with... Um, Stephen Hoadley, was extremely balanced, a fantastic explainer. And I think we've got two official complaints about it. Mm. You know, And it doesn't matter how balanced you think you are, someone on the other side or our side will take offence. And we've had a lot more formal complaints this year than we've ever had before. And I think people are just, um, you talk about the year of anger, they're going straight to the official complaint. Nobody talks these things out anymore, they don't ring you. One of the ones that surprised me was I, d- I went up to the far north and did a story on the terrible state of their roads and I got a very angry email about that um, and that I was in the pay of uh, the truck companies and... You know, it was all their fault that the roads were in such a bad way. You just think, <laughs> how do I respond to that? I'll tell you tell you what, if we had as much money as people assumed we had, including the bribes from the PITF, we wouldn't be here. We'd be off in Hawaii. <laughs> Heck yes. Stories about the weather uh, were a big theme this year. One of my favourites was uh, when I went to Titarangi, on the Monday of that anniversary weekend disaster in the city, and I went up one particular street, and I remember turning around the corner on on the street, and there... That's a chainsaw cutting into a huge kauri tree in Titarangi, West Auckland. It's crashed onto the road, bringing a spa pool down with it, and leaving a house teetering on the edge above. Oh my god, I'm so excited to see this big orange digger. What are they oh what are god. they doing here? Well they're just they've clearing. got to winch this tree because if that if they start digging and that slides down, there's two houses down here. I think your ones on the weather were absolutely very special. Um, particularly I went out to Murawai about six weeks ago and until you see it, you cannot imagine how bad that damage is, the slips and you can still see the crushed houses that have fallen down the hill and you just take a gasp and then think, you told me all this in your podcast and it was very kind of heartbreaking podcast because I think the Mirawai and Piha people, a lot of the Auckland people feel forgotten because the focus was on Hawke's Bay because, you know, devastation again and again and again. But these people still have real problems and they seem to get written off as, you know, Aucklanders. There was one man I sat in the car with outside his home that was the the road that was really badly hit and he had nothing. He was living in a caravan. He he didn't know what, what his future was. We're sitting outside your home. How does it make you feel? Hard to say. It's been a good home. I'd like to go back if it was safe. And we'll find somewhere else. I'm not normally emotional, although I do cry in movies.
Yeah, they are unresolved. And I'll tell you what, my husband's a plasterer and he has kept going this year on flooding. Now, he says just about every second home in Auckland must have the first 30 centimetres of jib board removed from their homes. And people are living like this. He's still got to get to jobs where the bottom half of the house has been completely stripped out. I know a friend who uh, in Birkenhead who's in a series of joined flats and the one next to her fell down the hill and her one of her rooms is down the hill. She's just roped it off and she just avoids that room. Why was your favourite podcast about illegal fishing in the Pacific? Well, this is purely selfish because A, I got to speak to two of the pilots from the New Poseidons, but... I've lived on the North Shore all my life. I have never been inside the gates of the Devonport Navy Base. And this is the day I got to do that. So I got to see the um, captain of the HMNZS Topo and um, the Navy people. Yes. Provided the sound effects for me. Hands to boarding stations, hands to boarding stations, hands to boarding stations. Port side is the engaged side. Hands not involved in boarding operations. And also got to speak to Corey Hawkins, who's our... Um, one of our Pacific reporters. Now, he's from the Solomon Islands, and he, gosh, he's amazing. Every time I speak to him, I could do a whole podcast on him. He's just got so much fascinating stuff. But getting out and about is is the treat of this job, I think, because you never know what you're going to get. I mean, I did. I remember doing a story about scrapyards because there'd been some fires in them, and we'd heard stories about how dangerous they were, that kind of thing. And so, you know, my dream was to actually go in one but we couldn't persuade any of the scrapyard company people to let us in. So I went out to one in in South Auckland one afternoon. There's a, a crane that's just lifted up a big shipping container over on one side. There's another, at least two other cranes, no, three other cranes operating next to piles of, of metal. And uh, right in front of me is... A huge machine, and it is several stories high. But just listen to this. What I see is a small explosion, but we later found out that, in fact, it had been something in amongst that scrap metal that had triggered that explosion. And that was... um, You know, that really fed into the story about how these can be very dangerous places because people take stuff there that they shouldn't take, like lithium batteries. But there were other unexpected um, things that happened to me when I was out and about, like when I was hanging on the side of 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 a... cliff, I suppose you'd say, out at Altea Great Barrier, <laughs> uh, counting petrol, black petrol, and it was a very, very stormy day. I'm crouched on the side of a steep hill. It's teeming with rain and the wind is howling around us. We're on Hirakimata, the highest peak on Altea Great Barrier, banding black petrol seabirds, Takokitai. We could ban this guy, it's quite calm here. So I need somebody ready to take him when I pull him out. It is a life and death moment in this weather. If it's down, gets wet, it could die. Yes, we need the banding kit. I need one person to be able to receive the bird. Not me. Okay. I haven't got gloves. No, but you just... could hold the umbrella. Oh, yes, I'd like to hold the umbrella. And it was 
a wonderful experience, but it was also quite a horrible that experience. That wasn't a holiday trip. That was, <laughs> that was not a junket. <clears throat> and a two-parter too, which was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah I but love you, that. You can't replace the stuff you get from being there. I remember the weekend that I went to Armageddon because I was doing something about comic books. Went to interview a comic book store owner and who should be talking to him but my son. <laughs> so I just basically got him to do the interview. And great. that was lovely because he's so passionate about it and really knows his stuff. Mm. Rocket Lab. What... Uh, privilege that was to go into this place where they actually build rockets. But I couldn't believe they let you go in. Not only that, they gave you this fantastic tour of the Mount Wellington operation, fantastic tour of the uh, Wellsford one. I mean, it was it was quite fun. No, you can't uh, can't take a photo of that. No, that's a secret. Just going up to space. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can that... I take a photo of that? Ooh, or no, that... probably oh, not. Really. Is this, the, is this the secret end of things? Well, this is, I mean, you're seeing nearly everything here. Oh, OK. No, don't no, touch that. No, don't touch that, no. Move away from there. <laughs> I'll tell you the one that I thought was the most impactful podcast I did this year, and that was one of your ideas on silicosis. Engineered stone is a kitchen and bathroom designer's dream. Cheaper, more varied in colour and less porous than marble. Better looking and more hard-wearing than formica. It's the material of choice when you're renovating. But for the workers who custom cut it, it's a nightmare. Without the right protections in place, they're breathing in tiny particles of crystalline silica that stick to their lungs and deliver them a death sentence. The great thing about having done that is that shortly afterwards, New Zealand's largest and only national stone benchtop fabricator announced that it was banning engineered stone that contained more than 40% silica. And the company that imports all our engineered stone said it would no longer supply companies that didn't have the safety registration, so weren't doing cutting it the right way. You know, it's so heartening when you can make a difference. This is a News Hub special to bring you the details of the full election results which have just been released. But politics obviously was never far from the detail. National politics as well as uh, local government politics, we've done a lot of stories because there's been some fascinating stories. For example, the Stout and Gore, the, oh, yeah. the new mayor. And you can't make that up. You cannot make that up. <laughs> they actually attended mediation back in December. So that gave a flavour of to, to how bad the relationship has got. They had only spoken twice before Christmas anyway. So, Tom. Kia ora. Hi, Hi Sharon. Kia ora. It's a little bit different uh, going on this side of the mic. I know. <laughs> Being interviewed by Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's, let's do a bit of a warm-up. Tell me about this year. Is it what you expected? I think the craft of making a podcast... There's a little bit more to it than I expected. I thought when I first started, it would be you do one interview, you do two interviews, you put it together, there you go, easy done. But there's actually a lot more crafting to it. Um, you've really got to think about the structure and how the two people, two or three people you speak to will fit in together. You know, the scary thing for me, I suppose, is will people want to listen to this to the end? <laughs> you've really got to be brutal about it. <laughs> you know, if a bit is a little bit boring, you've just got to chop it. No, because if you find it boring, then the rest of the world oh, will I find it boring. I think they probably will. <laughs> okay, I want to talk to you about your podcast on Karakia. There have been battles over saying them at council meetings across the Mortu. Uh, excuse me, just before we start, uh, through the chair, may I um, say the Karakia? Shut down by Kaipara's mayor. 
What was it about it, do you think, that was so special? I think it was a different way of, of telling a story. You will see that I did not leave the meeting when the karakia was being done. I left after the karakia, and at no stage would I disrespect the karakia. What also made it special is we worked quite closely with the late Andrea Gordon, who was the Māori cultural advisor here at RNZ. And she really helped me craft it in a way that was respectful to to, to te ao Māori. And I think hearing the stories from Mihi Nānangi Forbes and the way she used karakia, I remember there was one line she said where... Oh, we often have a karakia before we take off on a shoot. I might have one on a plane. My daughter often rings me and she says, Mummy karakia kui moku. If she's jumping on a plane, can you do a little karakia for me over the phone? So we'll do that. And you also talked to Māori tikanga expert Blackie Tohiariki. Yes, I did. And uh, I, mean, I think the lesson that I learned and a lot of other people learned is... Karakia is spiritual. Our Māori people, for want of a term, were never religious. Our people were spiritual people. Now, when you come from a spiritual base, then therefore a karakia is no longer a prayer. A karakia is sitting down... A karakia is looking people face-to-face, eye-to-eye. A karakia is setting intention of goodwill. A karakia is talking to the heart. And so that really started uh, debate all over the country. It did. Some councils are, are more in tune with karakia than others. Um, but I think we've still got a lot of learning to go and a lot of understanding to get, as you can see uh, with the new government. The Kermadex. Yes. Imagine an area the size of France. Now imagine that area in the ocean off the coast of New Zealand. That's how big the country's new ocean sanctuary will be. But at home, it was already causing problems, with the sanctuary overriding Māori fishing rights. The Crown has never asked Māori whether we consent to these rights being extinguished, and we object to being treated so disrespectfully. I think just the insight we were able to give in talking about the likes of um, how iwi consultation should happen, because uh, that was a big sticking point as to why um, Te Ohokamawana or the, the group of iwi voted this down uh, when the government came back with a new proposal a few months ago. Especially talking to Carwin Jones, a Māori law expert, about his insight into how iwi consultation should work and where it has worked well in the past. He uses the example of the Whanganui River. You've got a recognition that that the river has its own legal personality, but so to speak, on behalf of the river, it's two people who are appointed to, one appointed by you, one appointed by the Crown, to speak and be the voice for the river. If you are thinking about the river being bound up in your own identity and person, that changes the way you go about making decisions. You did one on 15-minute cities, which I, I had never heard of, actually. Really? Until, really? yeah, so, there you know, go. out of touch sometimes. How did it ever turn into a global conspiracy? Here's researcher and author Byron C. Clark. He wrote the book Fear, New Zealand's Hostile Underworld of Extremists. I've become aware of the 15-minute city conspiracy theories largely because I'm seeing what were COVID conspiracy theories segueing into climate change conspiracy theories. So the 15-minute city concept gets 
adapted into that with the, this idea of that we're going to have climate lockdowns and the government's going to force you to stay in your 15-minute zone around your neighbourhood and all these things like that to create that same fear that was out there during the pandemic. And did you get much reaction to that? Look, I remember getting a few emails. Uh, one particular person sent me a link, uh, an email with probably about 20 links as to why it was a conspiracy. And do you respond to them? If someone sends me an email with 20 links, I don't have time to look through 20 links. Uh, sometimes I'll respond to them if I th- think it's a valid criticism, but um, you know, I can't respond to everything. Tiny homes? Yes. That was kind of sweet. <laughs> sweet. <laughs> sometimes we need to do something we that's need to not do a little controversial. Or... I mean, it still is controversial. Yeah. Why? You think it's going to be an easy thing, but as we discovered, a lot of people who build tiny homes, um, their business fails. This is an industry that unfortunately has lent itself to things going wrong. Why it might be light and sweet, why you might see it that way, is because we we talked to someone who lives in a tiny home uh, to get a bit of insight, and I think that was quite interesting, you know, us city dwellers. Well, you ha- <laughs> I think you have this this image of Little House on the Prairie, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you do, you do, you do. But what's the reality? The reality is it's really tough. You've got to get so many different... Uh, consents and it's really complicated to get those because every council in the country is different. I think um, Charla May from Tiny House Hub, who I spoke to, said... I like to describe it that if you hold a driver's licence in Auckland, if you go down to Hamilton, you need to get a new driver's licence to drive in Hamilton. That's what it's like between the regions and Ooh. the tiny houses. Every council has different regulations, yeah. Now, there is one particular podcast that probably stood out for you because there was a personal connection, quite a lot of emotion for you. Tell me about that. I think you're referring to the uh, Hawke's Bay Cyclone Gabrielle um, podcast I did. That was an area I knew so well. But then uh, when I went down for the detail, I I just remember really distinctly in the truck with Kev Mitchell from the Rural Support Trust going over the hill into Esk Valley and... Okay, Oh, Tom, what? This is your first what? view of the Esk Valley. What? <laughs> I didn't think I quite have that reaction. Um, let's compare what it was like before and then let's compare what it was like after. There was a beautiful church, there were, there were schools, there were nice homes, there were vineyards, there were... Um, you know, a, a nice park by the river. Windows have been smashed. There are bright pink spray paint markings on houses to show they've been searched. And it smells really bad. It's putrid, a mix of rot and sewage which are drying in the hot summer heat. And that's still that way now? Well, the last time I went there, it was, it was very much like that. Take people there a long time to recover and recuperate from that. Yeah. Um, just a little summing up of your year. On the detail, Tom? Fun. <laughs> uh, look, a, a big learning curve, uh, but I mean, I've all, I've just got more to learn, I think. Uh, but it's one that I'm really stoked that um, you guys got me on board here, and it's been amazing to, to learn around uh, you and Alexia Russell, our producer, and also big thanks to Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison, our, our producers that left early this year for all they taught me. Not to mention the amazing operators or engineers, as we call them, who pretty up our polish our podcasts at the very end. Oh, look, they are absolutely fantastic. The team in uh, Auckland and the team in Wellington. Sometimes when I add the podcast over and then I hear the final version, it's like, 
wow, they really made that sound professional and I'm, it, they do amazing work. Well, Alexia, it's been a year. It's been another great year. It has. Year five. <laughs> but speaking of, should we do a little bit of chest beating and say that we've won a few awards this year? Oh, they, yeah. That was pretty cool. Recognition. So what yeah. do we got? We got a Voyager Award and then we got a Radio Award, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. And then we got this, <laughs> the New Zealand Podcast Award, we got the mm. Strange Spotlight Award Gold, yes. um, which I'm... Not sure what that means. No. Um, But anyway, we'll take it. (laughs) So thanks to all our listeners and thanks to our team for their support. Thanks to RNZ and Newsroom and NZ On Air. And this is the last podcast that will be funded by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which has become a millstone around everyone's neck. It makes no difference. Next year we'll be funded by NZ On Air. It's the same crowd and it's the money comes from the same place. Public money. <laughs> okay, ka kite and see you next year. Hi, 